0: Good afternoon and good morning to all of you. If This is Monday. I'm in Belgium, I think. So it's good to be back on American soil after being gone for almost a month. I do want to take some time here at the beginning to uh, let you in on uh, some of my impressions uh, of what's happening here and there in the church and uh, in the world for that matter uh, before getting into the sermon specifically although you can go ahead and start the tape because this will all tie together, uh, hopefully, before I'm done anyway. I'm going to skip my first stop uh, and go straight to Africa, uh, where I visited members in seven different cities, in Lomitia, Zambia, South Africa, and then a brief stop in Harare, Zimbabwe, the only because of... uh, Mugabe's followers there now, I say Mugabe because they're grabbing land uh, and the fear is among our people that the factor of greed is taking over and taking hold because Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe has made speeches in Zimbabwe, I mean in uh, Zambia, or excuse me, I'll get it straight here in a minute, jet lag I guess, or old age or whatever. Uh, he had made speeches in Namibia saying that the Namibians should also take over the white farms. And uh, a politician in Kenya has said the same. And this is old news to you uh, because this was on the news before I even left on this trip. But it is something that they fear is going to spread greatly. And already in South Africa over the last several years, there have been one to two, on average, farmers killed every day. And this is continuing. And with the land grab thing going on, uh, it probably will get worse because human greed knows no bounds. And they figure, if those people up there can have free land, why can't we have free land? I also learned uh, in Namibia that there's a new tribe in Africa. You've had all the tribes of the past that we know of, the Zulus and the Bushmen and various tribes, but there's a new tribe there since independence. Uh, It's called the Merbenzis. They're all the new officials who are riding around in Mercedes-Benzis. And they are also creating a great deal of jealousy among the people because they've taken the governments now and are turning them to their own greed and desires and lusts and uh, lining their own pockets. So there's a great deal of graft and corruption in government as well in those southern Africa countries. Bottom line... Our concern is for God's people, and they're living in extremely dangerous and increasingly dangerous times over there. I even heard when I was there that the Living Church of God has now established a fund uh, in pre- preparation of getting the living members out of Africa. Uh, this was told me or rumored second secondhand, so I don't know the extent of it or whether it's actually true or not. But I found it interesting that they are realizing that the danger is there, and Living does not have much of a presence in South Africa at this point anyway. They're very, very small. Uh, we're second to United in size, and we're not major players anywhere with Africa, which is, to me, quite interesting because, uh, you know, United has a bigger presence everywhere than we do, including the United States, certainly, and as does Living and several other groups. But... Uh, they're realizing that there is a very real danger there. And that's something that John and I have talked about from time to time. Uh, What about these people? What can be done? Those who have money are giving serious thought to immigrating to the United States or to Canada. Um, Those who don't are kind of stuck there. And it's very, very hard for an Afrikaans, a a white European, a person of white European extraction, to get into the United States now if you're oriental or brown or whatever else, it's come one, come all, Uh, but those of European extraction are having more trouble getting in, unless they have lots of money or whatever. So it is a situation that is worsening. Uh, I'm happy to report, though, that God's people there are strong and seeking God and very faithful to him and their approach and their zeal and their attitude. Uh, the churches in that sense are very healthy there, and I've been impressed with their zeal and energy uh, in the three years that we've been going over to Africa for the feast. So it was good to see them all again, uh, and to visit with them, and to anoint a few, and uh, so on and so forth, and just to make a pastoral visit in that sense. Uh, This is the first time that any of us have gone to Australia, New Zealand. We do have some very strong faithful members, very few, <laughs> in that whole uh, area. And there are really only two members in Australia, Wallace and Agnes Cozine, and I admire their pluck, their strength, their faith. I was able to spend, instead of backtracking, it didn't cost me too much more to go on around and see them. In fact, I figured the uh, cost per visit and. The cost per person to go see them was less than it cost to go see David Moss or Mark Schindler uh, through the year. Uh, so to go on around and visit them I, I thought was a real blessing. I was able to spend two evenings and a full day with the cuisines and brought the Sermonette that uh, Wallace had done. Uh, not having any other options at this point, he has been attending the feast with the uh, Church of God International, although he doesn't agree with them on many things, but That's the feast that is available. Uh, Living completely disappeared there. Um, United has a small congregation in Australia, a small feast site, and Philadelphia does. And that's about it. The church is decimated, virtually gone, the same as in Africa. I went to New Zealand and I found the same thing there. Uh, Living has, I mean, excuse me, no, United has a feast site there, and the member that is essentially with us, Andrew Milne, whom I've had quite a bit of correspondence with in the past and was able to spend some time with him, goes to the United Feast, which is fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. That's all that is available to him, and he simply doesn't have anywhere else to go. So when we start talking about Ezekiel 5 and other scriptures about the decimation of the church, the end time age, it's getting there which indicates to me, I think, that this can't go on too much longer. There will be simply nothing left. I mean, apart from miracles from God to keep a few alive, but with the normal attrition rate of what is occurring, uh, there's not much left. Worldwide is almost a joke. It's too serious to be a joke, otherwise it is a joke. If you kind of follow that. It's my jet lag humor, but uh, it's a sad situation. But anyway, it was good to meet those few who were scattered there that I was able to contact, and I hope encouraged them and certainly encouraged me to see people who are strong and faithful, even though they have very little support system other than tapes and forerunner and whatever they can clean from here and there. Now, I was also able to go by the Holy land on the way down to Africa. Uh, I had wished that many times that I could go see Israel and Petra and so on, So I took about a three-day holiday. There are no people to see there that are part of God's church. I don't know of any, and I have searched back through my mind, of any who have ever been converted in the countries of Israel. Mr. Armstrong sent a minister over there a time or two, and they stayed over there at times to make a liaison between uh, the church and the Israeli government and the Hebrew University and various things. Uh, If there were one or two converted or three or four, perhaps there were, I don't know, but I've never heard of it. That place is Sodom and Egypt, spiritually speaking. I've understood that based on uh, Revelation 11, but now I know there is nothing holy about it, there is nothing desirous about it. It is dirty, it is noisy, it is stinky, it is run over with All kinds of pagans, and when I say pagans, I mean Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Because none of them are righteous, no, not one, as Paul it in Romans 3. They have all left the truth of God. The Jews still have the Old Testament, but they weren't even following it in Christ's day, much less today. The Christians, so-called, have done away with the New Testament, have kept the New Testament, most of that they do not follow or care anything about. And the Muslims don't pay any attention to the Bible whatsoever. So what you have is three supposedly righteous major groups over there trying to control Jerusalem, uh, and God is not interested in any of them. We, we have to get rid of this thought in our mind that that's the Holy Land, because it is not. God called something Sodom and Egypt. What is he saying? Sodom had no value to God whatsoever. And he only took Lot and his wife out and the two daughters, and the wife didn't even make the trip because she looked back at it and wanted it. And Lot and his two daughters didn't do too well after that. But it's about perverted relationships is what Sodom is, and we're going to see that in the sermon, that we have some work to do on relationships, and that it's for now. I've wondered over the years, does, does the world have to get like Sodom, where everyone is queer, before God is so angry he tears it up? But it's really a type, is what it is, a type of perverted relationships. And all those peoples in Jerusalem and in Israel have perverted relationships with God and each other. Just as our own relationships have become perverted by this world, by the Babylon and Egypt, the sin around us. So God says that Jerusalem today is a mixture of poor relationships and sin. That's what it amounts to. Those people, the Jews, essentially a non-religious people today except for the Orthodox. Tel Aviv is known as the modern younger generation city. And I, I don't know whether this was true on all the beaches or not. I did not inspect them all. But I got in, I hired a car, and headed toward, or to the to the beach. I was going to drive north to Haifa and on up that way. So I thought, well, I'll go out and look at the Mediterranean while I'm here. So I parked the car there by, in a big parking lot there by the beach. And I get out of the car and start to walk toward the beach, and I notice something strange on the ground, so thick that you could not put your foot down, except very carefully without stepping on some. And it was used condoms all over that huge parking lot. That is the state of the capital of Israel today, the state of the Morse. That's just one example. And I hesitate to even say it. But, brethren, that's the way it is. Several Israelis told me they're not religious. And then you have the others, the Orthodox Jews, who are so very, very religious. But I flew El Al from Newark to Tel Aviv, and about dawn, I mean, everyone's trying to to sleep overnight on this plane and get the lights off, but about dawn... Here come these Orthodox Jews out of their seats and they put on their funny little hats and their their weird uniforms and they stand there like they have springs in their backs doing these pagan genuflections, praying over and over and over and stand at the wailing wall there, the western wall in the old city, and do the same thing, making fools of themselves before God and man. Not following biblical instruction whatsoever. One other thing I might mention here is that just before I left on this trip, there were newsreels on the the major news channels here in the United States that Israel was pulling out of the Golan Heights ahead of time, that they had made an agreement with the Palestinians, the the Lebanese, and so on there, that, that they would come on out. Now, this is interesting. I drove up to the Golan Heights. I drove all over the Golan Heights. And I picked up Israeli soldiers to go with me. They hitchhike from post to post there, and they carry their Uzis with them. So uh, my dad has told me before I went, he's Jewish. He says, uh, pick up the soldiers, and you'll have an armed guard with you. Not that that really mattered, but they're there to be carried. And I thought, well, this would be a good chance to visit and get to know them somewhat. So I picked them up quite frequently. But I went to the Golan Heights, and here were Israeli tanks and Israeli encampments, And up on the little series of... Uh, Volcanoes on the Syrian border there were still Israeli troops and I drove north to Mount Hermon and up on top of Mount Hermon on the Lebanese border and there were Israeli troops right there on the border and I said it was all over the U.S. news that you guys had pulled out of here speaking to a soldier he said we haven't moved an inch nothing has changed go figure can you trust the news that you see on your television with pictures of Israeli troops withdrawn? Not necessarily. Who knows when that film footage was taken? Who knows where it was taken? Now maybe I don't have all the facts here. I, I understand that. I saw the news before I left and I saw the Israeli soldiers when I got there and I got two totally different pictures. And I saw with my own eyes that right up to the Syrian and Lebanese border there were still Israeli troops all along there. So what's lying? Who's lying? Why are they lying? What is the political motivation behind this? Think about that. And wonder also if you can trust what you hear on the news. I won't take that any further. But... uh, I wanted to to go to Israel mainly so I could see Mount Carmel, so I could walk on Mount Hermon, so I could see Mount Zion and and Mount Moriah and some of these places, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Well, I'll tell you, it's a disappointment to go to the Mount of Olives. On top of the Mount of Olives, you've got a teeming Palestinian Palestinian city with uh, honking horns, screaming Arabs, and dust and dirt, and uh, so-called Christian uh, places to go visit, which I didn't visit, and you go to Mount Zion and it's a cemetery full of dead men's bones and has Orthodox and Christian temples on it. You go to Mount Moriah itself, and uh, there just above the Wailing Wall where the Jews are making idiots of themselves, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Mosque covering Mount Moriah. Now, is that holy to God? When Christ comes back, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and he's going to split it in two and clean living waters are coming out of there to begin to purify that place from the inside out because there's nothing holy there now. It is Sodom and Egypt. I didn't think I could go to Petra. I wanted to, but you can't fly from Tel Aviv or in Israel to Uh, Amman, or into Jordan, and fly back. So I gave up on the idea, and then I stayed at a hostel down on the Dead Sea one evening. I was there three days, and uh, talked to some people, said, You can go down to Elach, right at the very southern tip of Israel, and they'll they'll turn their head and let you cross the border, and then they'll let you come back. So I jumped up at 4.30 in the morning and headed down there, and sure enough, got to the border, and they would let me through, and they assured me they would let me come back. I asked. So uh, I hired a taxi along with another couple, and uh, we went to Petra. Some of you have your pillows ready and you're wanting to go there, and the church has been anticipating going there since the early 50s as far as I know. Let me tell you this. Unless that place is prepared, you don't want to go there. Two hours was plenty for me, and I was out of there. It is dusty. It is dirty. It is hot. It is smelly. The Jordanian government has made it a national park. I mean, commensurate to our Yellowstone or whatever. So they have a little reception area at the top, and they actually have toilets up there. But then you walk 1.2 miles down into, through the seat to get into the valley, and then you walk on down another kilometer or two looking at caves, and there are no toilets down there. Well, so, uh, yeah, I guess there are. Uh, the treasury, uh, all the caves, that's what they're used for. The Arabs use them. The visitors use them. And the smell of ammonia in all of those caves, including that beautiful treasury that you see as you go out to seek that everyone has taken a picture of, uh, you can hardly stay in the place. You don't want to be there long. So if you want to go there, fine. I don't mean to give an evil report. But, and and I, I don't in that sense. I'm just saying it will require miracles from God before you would want to be there. I would not want to go back to the the so-called Holy Land or Jerusalem or Petra in this life unless there were a real reason uh, having to do with God's people uh, that a person would want to go there. It's just not a place you'd want to visit and be around. So that's why God calls it Sodom and Egypt, or at least that's part of the reason. I won't spend more time here, uh, but I wanted to let you know that Bethlehem is not a little town, and it's not a clean town. And Nazareth is not a place that I would want to dwell in. Apparently some people do because they have this so-called Christian aura about them, so they want to be in Nazareth or Bethlehem. But they're really not desirable places to be, uh, based on, let's say, American standards in that sense of places you'd want to be. But then I'm biased somewhat, because as far as I'm concerned, L.A. is a place that I might want to visit to see you, but I wouldn't want to live there. (laughs) I'm sorry you have to be here. Uh, Maybe you like it, but uh, there are certain things nice about it. And uh, yet on the other hand, it is a teeming metropolis full of sin in this world and Babylon and certainly the midst of it, and hopefully God will take you and us and all of us out of it soon. Well, let's get to Zechariah now. I've not been in this for quite some time because of the spring holy days and then a follow-up sermon uh, having to do with that, Uh, but I did want to get back and try to get on through this series. But since it's been so long, let's have a brief review. Uh, We've been going through the minor prophets, and the focus turned directly to the church in the book of Haggai, where God said, Fear not. Uh, forget your own homes and your things of this world and, and the salaries you're making that are full of holes and taxes and inflation and everything takes it out. Uh, turn your attention to me and my church, my temple, that needs to be rebuilt because we've seen the destruction of God's latter, or former temple here in this age and the continuing destruction of that temple as the church scatters more and more and more. But God shows there that he is going to call two leaders. Uh, We've had an absence of leadership, as we've seen in many scriptures, since Mr. Armstrong died, and every man doing that which he chooses pretty much, and no one of any spiritual stature has stood up that we can all recognize and say, that's obviously where God's working. It just hasn't been. Some have stood up and said, I'm the one where God is working and yet nothing has seemed to much happen in those cases where that has occurred. But well, the scriptures clearly tell me that during this period of time there is a hiatus, a, a, not a hyena, where have I been, a hiatus of leadership in the church. That our king is dead, our counselor has perished, and we are for a time here without a king. Uh, much as in the days of judges, every man is leaning to his own understanding, and seems like it's hard to find two men that agree uh, very much anymore. So we have confusion, and that is the state of the church today, as it has been torn down stone by stone, and the tearing down is continuing. But we start getting a strong dose of hope in the book of Haggai, that there are old men among us who will be able to compare what was and was torn down with that which will shortly be built and that this is done within the lifetime of those old men. There are some here, I see, who probably would qualify, uh, by virtue of gray and balding heads, uh, who have been around long enough to have seen worldwide in its greatest glory and its demise, and will also yet live long enough to see what God puts back together out of the dregs of the worldwide Church of God, the splits, the daughters. So that is the message of Haggai, that he's going to put it back together, that it will be greater in glory than that which came before, and that in this place he will bring peace. Then we get into the book of Zechariah, and we find there that we should not have been as our fathers were, who would not listen to the prophets, but that we should pay great attention to the prophecies because they have a tremendous message for us today. And Haggai and Zechariah are end-time books written in the context of the end-time, the context of Joel and the day of the Lord, for instance, and the context of the end of the age is mentioned in the latter days all through the minor prophets. So it's a message for today. It's a message for us today, specifically as the churches of God. But we are to pay attention here to what is going on. And be not as our former, uh, as our fathers were to, who did not listen to the former prophets, that's Zechariah 1, 4 through 5 and 6. Then he talks about the church being measured and how it will be rebuilt in chapter 2, that Christ will be in it and with it through chapter 2. And in chapter 3 and 4, he concentrates on who the leaders of this end-time temple will be, using Joshua and Zerubbabel here, who were... Uh, part and parcel with the building of the temple back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, that they were types of those men back then. But he set Haggai and Zechariah right in the middle of these end-time prophecies leading up to the book of Malachi and the return of Christ. And Zechariah talks about the return of Christ. So the the whole setting here is right at the end, right now. That we need to understand fully. But the leadership he's talking about in Zechariah 3 and 4 are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Because he says in Revelation 11 that those two are the anointed ones. And the only place that there is a reference to two anointed ones is in Zechariah 4, verse 14. So that reference has to be back to them. Now, the church as a whole does not seem to understand this that the two witnesses are not there just to give a final warning against the world, as a witness against the world, but they are there to rebuild the church and put the latter temple back together, or put the latter temple together. That's their job, and their job is to give oil to all seven churches, as Zechariah 4 shows. So their first job and responsibility is to the church, not to the world. And as we saw in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, Uh, he says, leave out the Gentiles. Forget about them. And having just traveled around the world and seen a lot of Gentile cities and a lot of peoples here and there as well as Israelite cities, this world is not ready to listen. I understand more now, and it grieves me that most of mankind has to die before they will be willing to listen. And the mess that is on this planet is going to have to be utterly destroyed and renewed from Mount Mount of Olives out in order for it to have the righteousness of God and peace and happiness and prosperity everywhere. What we have today is an abomination in the eyes of God. So he is going to call two here at the end who will be used to put the church back together And out of all those who have been called, a few are going to be chosen, who have been faithful and strong and true, and they will form that, so the glory has to be greater because, remember, the former, under Herbert Armstrong, was filled with lots of tares, lots of unconverted, lots of this and lots of that. And that is now being weeded out to see who will be faithful and strong. God is sifting the church now. That is his object. And once this sifting is almost done, he's polishing stones and he's going to bring them together without noise. That's the way they built the original tabernacle. Without noise. They formed and fashioned the pieces off-site so there would be no sound of hammering when it was put together. Now, when God puts the latter temple together in peace, it will be without the noise of chaos and fighting and confusion and arguing because he is in living and in united and independently on couches and in CGG and here and there preparing those stones off-site, polishing them up, getting the old uh, mortar off them and shaping them so they will go into place and fit when he puts the temple back together. So it will be done in peace and not with noise, not with having to hammer things into place. The hammering is going on now, if you haven't noticed. The chiseling is going on now in our character and in our lives, in the pressure that God is putting on in order to polish us and sandblast us. just happened to think of a house I built in Idaho one time, and I had a friend in the church there who worked at the railroad yards dismantling old boxcars. And there was fine, fine wood on those floors. Two full two by six mahogany tongue and groove, uh, some of them were. Others were solid oak, red and white oak, two and an eighth inches thick, and they were laminated together with aluminum dowels, and it was red oak and white oak, but they were so dirty, so full of nails, so dinged up so full of rocks that I thought, how can I use this? But I had cleaned up a section. I could see that beautiful oak wood under there. And I I tried different methods, and I wanted to run it through the jointer and and just take that top layer off, but there were so many nails and rocks and pieces of metal in there that it would ruin the the jointer immediately. How can I possibly use this? And I was almost ready to just throw it away and forget it. And then an idea hit. I could rent a sandblaster. And I could blast all this stuff off, pull the nails out, and blast the rest off. And I did that, and and that high-pressure sand cleaned that up so that it you could see the beautiful red and white oak and the grain and texture underneath. Tremendous pressure had to be applied with some very gritty material, just like you know, sprayed sandpaper more or less. And suddenly it turned out beautiful. So I said, Hey, I bought an old truck, took it down there and parked it, and when he took those boxcar floors out, he stacked it on the truck and I'd drive it home, take it back for another roll. And I lined my house with two and an eighth inch thick oak paneling and made floors with the mahogany. It turned out beautiful. But boy, did it take some work and some blasting and some pressure. I just happened that came of my mind as I was standing here talking about the pressure God is putting on the church to, to reshape, to reform, to get the dirt, the filth, the embedded things out so that we can be beautiful. And that's what was required to utilize that blood again. And it's what is required to utilize us. So as we come through this pressure and God gets us polished and prepared, And I find it encouraging to read that, to know that that's what God is doing, because some of us are under tremendous pressure with our health, with our wealth, with our willingness, with a lot of different attitudes that we have, that we've come by over the last years. And these have to be worked with. So be encouraged that when you feel the sting of sand or or the chisel and the hammer, that that is what God has in mind. He's preparing you, and through many afflictions and through much tribulation, enter. Uh, Through the afflictions, he says, he'll deliver us out of them all, ultimately. So there's great encouragement, really, in what is happening to the church if we have the ability to discern and see what it is that God is actually doing here. He's tearing it down, but he's selecting specific stones to use to rebuild, and once we're shaped and the old mortar is off that was not good mortar, untempered mortar, once that's all off, then he's going to build with the right mortar and put the church back together, and he's going to use the two witnesses, and Joshua and Zerubbabel, to give oil to all seven, and the church then is going to be put together out of all the daughters that came out of worldwide, and maybe some from Worldwide. But many will have to go through greater pressure in great tribulation to shape them and bring them to repentance. But right now we have a period of time in which we can repent and allow God to shape and form us as the potter with the clay, or to reshape us as as the with a hammer and a chisel to get us ready to go into position. So this is a glorious golden opportunity for us, if we'll just take the opportunity and use it zealously and excitedly to get ourselves ready so that we can be a part of what God is about to do. So that is the setting of the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah. Then we went through chapters 5 and 6 of Zechariah and looked at some of these areas that have been enigmatic, which do appear to be talking specifically about the church and how there's a curse because of sin, and how worldwide it's been taken back into the land of Shinar or Babylon, and seven are based there, uh, the base of Protestantism and ultimately Catholicism, and that it's not a good thing in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6 we see that uh, God again addresses the situation, and some of the angels who come out from his throne are going to quiet God's anger and his spirit in the north country. Uh, they have a great deal to do with the setup and the preparation of the church. And then he again addresses specifically Joshua in uh, Zechariah 6, uh, where uh, verse 11, as well as four other leaders. And then he mentions the branch, which is likely bell is a type of, of Christ, uh, and how the temple will be built. So here again, we're in the same context. That's important to understand. We're in the same context of Haggai. Still the selection of the leadership. Then he goes back and gives the same uh, counsel and advice to, I think, all of us in verse 15 of chapter 6 of Zechariah. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. Now that's, that's Haggai's language as well how God will stir up the people and they will come and he will stir up Joshua and Zerubbabel and they will build the temple of of God. So it's the same context we're talking about here, not the millennium. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So the putting together of the latter temple is contingent upon our obedience to God. Diligently. Diligently seeking him, diligently obeying his ways and his will. Therefore, we cry aloud and spare not and say, get to work. Because God says, fear not, be of good courage, and work. Work, it's shaping. The one stone you have to work on, really, is you. Not the beans more. influence our mates, our family, our brothers in the church, and we can iron sharpening iron, encourage each other, and we certainly should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to work together and to help one another. We're going to see that as we move on through here. But We have the opportunity to help God in letting the old mortar come off and the polishing work better uh, to respond to his efforts. The the potter and the clay is a good analogy there, because The clay has to be the right consistency in order to be molded and shaped the way God wants it made. All right, with that background, then, let's go to Zechariah 7. I had thought of trying to breeze through the rest of Zechariah today to finish the book, but as I began to really focus on chapter 7 and 8, I realized that there is a vital message here, that this is the last, basically the last instruction to the church before the day of the Lord and the end of the age is upon us. We've addressed the fact that the church will be rebuilt if there's diligent obedience among God's people, that he is going to produce the leadership. This is going to happen, brethren. I said the church, the Latter Temple, will be built if we respond. The Latter Temple is going to be built. He is going to present us these leaders. They are going to make a final witness to the world. Lest God come and smite the earth with a curse, that buys Malachi it. This is going to happen. But diligent obedience is not something that can be done as a group therapy in one sense. Diligent obedience is a personal, private matter. And whether we are part of that latter temple or not, is much dependent upon our diligent obedience. And we're going to see that in chapter 7 and 8. Uh, Rather than breezing through this, I think we should go through it in detail, that we should understand it, what God is talking about here. And I've already utilized a lot of my time just getting to it. So let's get into it now. And the first thing to note is that Zechariah 1 through 6 were written previous to Chapter seven. There's a two-year gap between the end of year end of uh, chapter six and the beginning of seven. I don't know what to think of that yet. Uh, whether there is a specific two-year period that is uh, important here at the end of this age that he's talking about. You will recall from Ezra that there was a stoppage of work on the temple for a while uh, until attitudes got right until conditions were right until people were ready to respond. And that's what Haggai was referring to when he said, you've started building your own houses, you're doing your own thing, get back to work. And the church has been doing its own thing and drifting and losing and sitting, but not actively, spiritually actively, not zealously. And this has been the problem. So he said, fear not, be of good courage and work. Well, when he says fear not, that means that there are things coming up that we will fear. There are things coming up that will try to block us, that will try to stop this. And he says, fear not, and go to work. Get it done. But they had a stoppage of work for a while. Things went into confusion. And perhaps that is the case here as well, because we just talked about the introduction of the leadership. We've talked about uh, a period of time here where diligent obedience has to be shown. So maybe there is also a period of time when there will be a certain amount of confusion and stoppage. I don't know. But there is a two-year gap here for some reason. So just keep that in mind. I I don't know what to do with it except to note as we go through that it is there. And whether it is talking about a short period of time, uh, because it could be in type, uh, two years would be a short time, uh, or it could be specifically two years, or whatever. I just don't know, and I don't know exactly what it means. But, noticing the last verse of chapter 6, where we are told to diligently obey, and then getting into the context of chapter 7 and 8, there is an indication that we are about to go through some trial and some tests, and further scattering, as we shall see shortly. So things are not quite rosy even after he talks about how the leadership will come and, and encourages us to get busy doing the work of building the temple. So it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius, though the rest came in the second year of Darius, uh, when they had sent to the house of God, Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Eternal or as my margin says, to entreat the face of the eternal. Remember now, in this period of time that we're in, from other scriptures, God has turned his face from us for a short while, he says. But he's very frustrated with our sins. Therefore, Zechariah sent these men, or they had sent, I guess, uh, Zechariah leading it, to pray before God and to seek his face, to seek his uh, mind, his thoughts about the church and what needed to be done or in that case, building that temple. Uh, we see it as building the temple today. And to speak to the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, so the ministry would be the commensurate today, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself, as I have done these so many years, speaking of the seventy years in captivity, where they had several days that they had set aside to fast because of their plight? Now, we have been in 70 years a church in the midst of Babylon and screaming for deliverance, wishing to go to a place of safety, wishing the kingdom of God to come, wishing to be delivered from all the filth, the corruption, the the, the mess that we see around us. And our heart's desire is to get away from this. But wait a minute. Is that what our attitude should be? Is that what our focus should be? Now, Zechariah sent these men to entreat God to see what their focus should be. And they're written to us. Because this is an end-time prophecy for the church right now, after he's talked about the leadership and the rebuilding and how it will be done, who will be used, what their message will be. Then he starts talking about seeking God's face, about attitude and doing what had been done. Then came the word of the Lord of Hosts to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the ministry, saying, When you fasted in mourned in the fifth and seventh month, and even those seventy years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? And when you did eat and when you did drink, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? In other words, has your mind not been on your captivity? Has your mind not been on yourselves and your own plight? Instead of what I am doing, have we prayed for the kingdom of God, perhaps in some respects for the wrong reasons at times? Have we wished to go to a place of safety or to the kingdom of God for the wrong reasons at times? Yes, we have been in captivity. Yes, our children have had to go to these public schools and learn evolution and learn all kinds of wrong things, both morally and educationally or academically. And we are in a terrible time. And it is natural to want to pray for deliverance. Like, who was it, Jeremiah said, Oh, that I have wings and I could fly into the wilderness away from all this, away from these people. And we've had the same emotion. So that emotion is not necessarily wrong to wish to be out, because he keeps telling us, come out of Babylon. But at the same time, maybe our focus and our emphasis has been a little too selfish. And that's what's being brought out to us here. This ties in very well, I think, with Isaiah 58, which we turn to quite frequently on the Day of Atonement, where God says, you fasted in vain. You fasted for the wrong reasons. Uh, And he said, fast for the reason of clearing the sin out of your lives, getting pure and clean before me. In other words, to fulfill his purposes and please him in our lives is the main focus that God tells us should be the matter of fasting. He says, when you are cleansed then, when you are pure, then you'll be called the repairers of the breach. There are many breaches in the walls in the church of God today. and they need to be repaired, but they have to be people qualified to do that repair work. So he said, let's be sure your focus is on God and pleasing God, not on just saving your lives, not on just relieving the pressures and the things, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations that we are going through but rather to use those for a good purpose. He continues, Should you not hear the words which the Lord has cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity? Should we not have been reading the prophecies when things were still going well in worldwide, when things still looked prosperous, when things still looked good, when everybody was still together and unified? Because you know what? The story has been in here all along that through sin and Laodiceanism, the church would be scattered. But you know what? Nobody saw that. Nobody understood those prophecies. It hit the church as a shock that it would all of a sudden start coming apart. And they blamed it on the devil. And they blamed it on this. And they blamed it on that. And they blamed it on the Laodiceans, whoever that might be. But few even today understand that it is God who is scattering the church because of Laodiceanism and because of failure to follow the truth of the Bible. And this is going to continue until a sufficient amount of people have repented to put the latter temple together, and then those who have not yet repented and gotten the message are going right onto the tribulation and have even more pressure to bring them to true repentance. So should we not have been listening? You bet we should have. We shouldn't have allowed ourselves to go to sleep and become Laodicean, but we did. We didn't listen to the former prophets. Now we're getting them thrown in our face because we didn't heed. We didn't see. We didn't read. We didn't find the truth about ourselves and the church and what was going to occur. We didn't understand Agai and Zechariah because we thought that under Herbert Armstrong we were in the latter temple. But it didn't turn out that way. We didn't understand these prophecies. All right. Shouldn't, shouldn't you have read these, he says, uh, when men inhabited the south and the plain, when the church was all together, when there was basic peace in the church? Those were unguarded areas of, of ancient Israel. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the populace, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Now here is the crux, the beginning of the crux of the message of Zechariah 7 and 8. Here is what God wants us to focus on. First, relationships. A relationship with him that we weren't seeking really to please him, we weren't seeking to serve him with all our hearts. We were seeking to be delivered from our troubles. We were seeking to be in his kingdom just so we could be happy. But we weren't doing it out of the genuine love for the rest of God's church and ultimately the rest of the world. And as a result, God has blown us apart because that which we feared has come upon us. And so often our fears come to pass. So he says first, get your relationship with me right. Get, get that one straightened out first. Then, he says, keep the last six commandments. Get these relationships among ourselves straightened out. So understand the setting here, brethren. This isn't just a principle that we pull out of here, that is it's a good spiritual principle that we ought to follow. This is the last and final instruction to the end-time church of what to be doing of what is wrong with us, of what needs to be corrected. That is the message that God is giving us here, because you get to the end of the book of Zechariah, and you go into the day of the Lord, and Christ coming down and standing on the mount. And then Malachi is just a summary of what the minor prophets have talked about, basically, with a couple of parting shots. We won't get into that story now. So, this section of Zechariah is crucial for you and me. that that relationship with God be restored properly and that our relationships among ourselves in the church get restored properly. Have you ever noticed lately that people in the church don't get along too well? That the different daughters that came out don't get along too well and argue and fight among themselves and each tries to stand up on a rock and say, I'm the best and the prettiest of the bunch? And a cry of repentance is not what you're hearing. They're telling everyone else to repent but not themselves. And I say this is written to us, not to them. Whoever them is, you know, they say is a great authority, and they need to repent. Is also a an easy catchphrase to use, but it's you and I that need to repent. It's you and I that need to heed. We're here. We're hearing it. We we are being exposed to it. It is critical that we hear this. That we begin show the kind of love that we need to to each other. We can have all knowledge. We can understand all prophecies. But if we don't get these relationships right, it's all in vain. Love or faith, hope, and love are the big three. But the biggest of the big three is the love. There's no way of getting away from that. And that's what he's talking about here. If you you were really loving me and pleasing me, uh, you wouldn't be doing all that fasting you were doing just to save your heights. You would be doing it to further my purposes. And then among yourselves, you would be bending over backward to get along with each other and not misusing and abusing one another. And he says, to the ministry and to the people. And, um, you know, we could go back to Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and talk about the preachers for a while here again. Malachi 1, you've probably got a few more choice ones you've uh, found. It's us first. I say me as a minister first, to get my life straightened out, my mind straightened out, and to help you understand God's message for you right now. is to work on these relationships. I don't have time to go into each one of those and expound uh, the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, and so on, but it's talking about all the relationships and those who are downtrodden and, and those that you might tend to look down on, anyone you might tend to look down on. It's easy to respond to our friends and our family and those who love us. But what about others? That's the hard part. And that's what Christ talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and so on. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yes, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. What is the law? Love God and love man, as Christ summarized it. And the words which the Lord sent in his spirit by the form of prophets... Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. The church refused to hear these words. They refused to hear this instruction that God gave to the church in Zechariah. And upon us has come a great scattering. But I scattered them, verse 14, with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned. For they laid the pleasant land desolate. The church is in desolation today and it's getting more desolate every day as more and more depart and give up and give in. Well, this is the setting of the book of Zechariah. Now, let's go on in chapter 8. The pleasant land is the church. The church is the apple of his eye, remember. Uh, the, the, The promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, I refer you back to Hebrews twelve twenty two 22, 23, where he calls the church Zion and Jerusalem and so on. We've been over those many times, but as a reminder here that these things are talking about us, not the unholy land of today. Because that's Sodom and Egypt, and the church is the apple of his eye today. We need to understand that. And the apple of his eye has a rotten core. And well, we have to get our hearts right and turn to God. Again, the word of the Lord. Different message here. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice the similarity here of the language that Haggai used. He used the Lord of hosts, what was it, 13 or 17 times in that short book. I forget the exact number. But he uses it over and over here as well. And there are certain uh, big issues or recurring themes in chapter 7 and 8 of Zechariah that hearken back to Haggai's words as well. And those big issues are fear. Uh, and or then faith and courage. And we'll see that truth and peace are recurring themes in this next chapter. So the things that we need to be focusing on on right now as we're we're discussing are getting the relationships right, basically what chapter 7 is about, between God and man, and with each other as men, and not to fear, but to be of good courage and to diligently follow through. Now let's get to chapter 8. Again the word of the Lord of hosts came. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I was zealous, jealous for her with great fury. So God is, has not been happy with the way things have gone in the church. He loves the church. He loves his people. But he's very unhappy with the way we became. Thus says the Lord, I am returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So he's using the same imagery that he uses in Zechariah 1.17 and 2.10, talking about the church specifically, not again about the millennium. It's important we understand this. This is for now. Uh, We haven't even gotten to the biggest scattering of the church yet. That's in Zechariah 11. So we're still talking about this time frame as we sit here today. But he's going to rebuild Zion, Jerusalem, the church, put this latter temple together, and it will be called a city of truth. Not of a mixture of truth and error, but of truth. Remember, Elijah has to restore all things. Herbert Armstrong was not Elijah. And I will prove that to you, I think, uh, conclusively when we get to the end of the book of Malachi. Malachi because of the job that yet has to be done that he did not finish. He restored a great deal, and he did a a lot to turn us to our Father in Heaven. But there are an awful lot to do with the relationships that are not restored. And and obviously we can see it here in chapter 7 of Zechariah that they haven't been restored because he's writing to us now after he tells us that he's going to introduce the leadership. The next thing he says is your relationships still aren't right. That's the next thing he tells us. So we are facing a crisis of relationship, and we're facing a crisis of truth and peace. We haven't gotten to the truth and peace here yet. We've, we did talk about how it will be a city of truth. So it has to be purified. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of, of the church, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Now, we've heard the Protestant song, and we think this was all about the millennium, but we're not in that context yet, see. He's still talking about the church here. When God puts the latter temple together and prepares a place for it and takes it there, it's going to be full of old men and old women and children playing, and they're going to be happy because peace and truth will then reign in the church instead of the chaos and confusion that we have in the church today. Notice the context in verse 6. So Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous or hard or difficult in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be hard or difficult in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, we look at the way things are and we think, Man, this is tough. This is difficult. This is so hard. How can we hang on? How are we going to endure to the end? Uh, I, I'm running out of steam. I'm running out of ability to hang on, a lot of people are saying. Endurance is not easy patient endurance is even harder. But God says, not difficult, I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to open blessings to you as Isaiah 54 on shows. And he's talking about the remnant of this people in these days. We're not to the millennium yet, we're talking about the latter time in these days. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country and I will bring them He says he'll stir them up and they'll come from afar to build a temple. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. He comes back to those key elements of what the church must have, is truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days. Let your hands be strong. Don't be weak. This is no time to give up your loser grip. By the mouth of the prophets. That's what we're reading. It's the mouth of the prophets here. Which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. There you go. There's the context again. That's what we're talking about is today. For before these days there was no hire for man or any hire for beast. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction For I said, all men, every one against his neighbor. There's your church of today. We're still in that. This daughter is against that daughter, and this one puts that one down, and people are criticizing one another, and they get in the journal, and throw rocks at each other, and on and on and on it goes, this confusion that we face. God has set our hearts and our hands against each other. But now I will not be to the residue, see the remnant, the residue of this people, as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying is there's a change coming, but this chaos and confusion and arguing and fighting is going to stop. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things the spiritual blessings are going to begin to flow again. And even physical blessings as he prepares a table in the wilderness, I think, are attendant with it. And it shall come to pass that if you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, and we as a church have become that, a curse among the churches, the peoples of this world, and even some of us who have departed, we've become a curse to those who have departed from the truth. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. See, if Christ were here, the millennium had started, this would not be necessary instruction. Because the king would be there, and the bride would be there, and we would have nothing to fear. So he's still talking about a time prior to that when there is still a great deal to fear. Well, not really, but we as humans tend to fear it anyway. If we will trust in the Almighty Lord of hosts, we have nothing to fear. But being human we tend to fear and we don't want to do those things that need to be done. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the eternal host, and I repented not, so again have I thought in these days to do well in the Jerusalem into the house of Judah, fear you not. So the turnaround is not far off. Once he introduces the idea of new leadership and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it in Revelation 11 and Zechariah 3 and 4 and so on then there's a period of time here in which our diligent obedience and our uh, commitment to truth and righteousness and peace is tested then God is going to turn this around and he is going to bring blessings on the church of God like we have never even dreamed of healings gifts of tongues. I forgot to mention the people in Angola, uh, or that had come out of Angola in the refugee camp there in northern Namibia at, at the Osiris refugee camp. I met with two, I guess, elders. They showed me cards showing that they had the, the, the uh, lion and the lamb symbol from Worldwide Church of God on it. And uh, they only spoke Portuguese and Angolan, and I'm very limited barely speaking English, and uh, I had trouble. We had an interpreter there, but it was very, very difficult. Uh, the interpreter kind of went different directions, and it was hard to get him focused and, and, and to really talk with those people, but they said they have 40 people there in that refugee camp who want to obey God. And I tried to get across that uh, through body language and, uh, and so on that uh, Armstrong, yes, i smile and wave my hand, yeah, that's good. And then Tkach, oh no, I frown, shake my head, uh, trying to get across to them what it is they should be looking at uh, instead of what has been available. But they tell me that there's 1,800 in Lubango, I think it was, one city up there, um, that are trying to be faithful. And, I, and they said there are 15,000 in Angola who are baptized members. I find that hard to believe. Uh, maybe some of those were, praise the Lord, Tkachers that have come along since but there seems to be a core group there who do have Mr. Armstrong's booklets and who are still trying to state the truth, but they also have these Protestant missionaries. The refugee camp is a magnet for that type of people to come and convert these heathen. They have pressure from those people. So, you know, God is going to give the gift of tongues at some point. What about when he brings all these people that he's talking about from the East and the West and his... Polished blocks that are ready to put in the temple. We get there and we can't understand each other. Is he going to just simply reverse Abel once we get there? I think so. I think that's what Acts 2 and Joel are talking about. But the benefits and the blessings of God are going to be poured out in such a way that we it's beyond our comprehension to understand. He says in chapter 10 here, the, the lighter rain and the former rain will come. The, the, the blessings is due from God. We're going to come back. Let's not skip ahead too much to that right now. Let's try to finish up what we've got on the plate today. But he's telling us there's an end coming to this fractious situation we've been in. It's almost over. And maybe we have a short period of time here where the confusion and chaos and scattering is going to get worse, and we will have a crisis of truth, a crisis of righteousness and peace, and a crisis in relationships. That's the next message after he tells us where this leadership is going to come from. So all I can say is brace yourselves. We've got a period of time here in which things are going to get worse instead of better. But then we have a glorious turnaround in which these issues will have been addressed and properly reconciled, and then God is going to turn his face back and bless the church like it's never been blessed. And the glory will far outshine anything that we experienced in the past 50 years. Verse 17, well, wait a minute, I've got to go to, I skipped some here. I guess we stopped in 13, fear not and and let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts. You see, we're still here in a time when there are bad situations that would cause fear in us as humans. Fear to do this, fear to do that, uh, fear of what is coming, fear of leadership, fear of, uh, who knows, there's so many things that we fear right now in this chaotic condition we're in. But he says, be strong and be building. Be, be getting yourself ready. Verse 15, So again have I thought in these days to do well with Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. He says this again. These are the things that you shall do. Here's instruction for us in this context, in this time. Speak you, every man, the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Truth is on the line and peace is on the line. These are the things that God emphasizes here and he does again down in the end of verse 19. Love the truth and peace. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 What is truth? John 17.17 Thy word is truth. This book, the word of God, is truth. We need to have our head in here finding truth. Psalm 12.6 says his word is purified seven times as silver is tried in a furnace. I don't know how many times they smell silver, but it's not seven times, I don't think, to get all the gross out. Maybe it is. And maybe that's why he used the example. But he said he purified every word here seven times. There's not a lie in here. There's nothing that is not the word that he wanted to give us in here. John 10.35 Scripture cannot be broken. Anytime there's a conflict between anything any man says or any group of men and this book we have to take the book because Scripture cannot be broken. Deuteronomy 4.2 tells tells us Deuteronomy 4.2 tells us not to diminish or add to one word of this book Now, there's nobody in the church today who would actually take scissors and clip out parts of the Bible. But the Protestants have taken figurative scissors and clipped out everything in the Old Testament except Psalms and Proverbs, which they've included with their New Testament Bible. And most of the New Testament, they have mentally or figuratively clipped out. There's only a few things that they follow. But the church of God here has a crisis of truth, he says. We have to stick to the truth and find the truth about any and everything because we have to worship in spirit and in truth and the scripture cannot be broken. And if we diminish anything in here, leave it out or don't emphasize it or say, well, that's not very important in our own minds, that is taking away from, that's diminishing in principle, whether you clip it out or not. Revelation 22, parting shot. Anybody that adds one word to this book, adds one principle, adds one rule, adds one commandment, adds anything to this, will not be in his kingdom. And anyone who takes anything out of it will have his name also taken out of the book of life, and so on. So truth is a very important thing to consider. John 8.32, let me quote one more on that. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. All this chaos and confusion, once the truth is known and followed, is going to disappear. And peace? I'm running out of time here. I wrote down several scriptures about peace. Let's turn quickly, or I will at least, to James 3.18. Well, let's go to verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace has to be made. It is not a natural, automatic reaction. It has to be manufactured. It has to be manufactured according to Scripture. We have to do things in a certain way in order to be free from the confusion and fighting and and griping, complaining, and uh, pushing away that is happening in the church today. What did Paul say in Romans 12:18? That we should, as much as is in us, live in peace with all men. With To strain with every fiber of our being, is what Paul was saying, to have peace among all men. I can tell you the church is not doing that because we're not producing peace. There's still too much war and fighting and too much negative emotion within the churches of God. So we have a lot of work to do. Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Matthew 5, 9. The peacemakers. So when God talks about truth and peace here, he's telling us that these are areas that we as a church today, this is a prophecy for us, So we as a church today need to be concentrating on these areas. The relationship between God and man, chapter 7, and then he begins to emphasize truth and peace in chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love the truth and peace. In other words, you've been fasting, he's talking in that sense to the Jews of the day who have been in captivity for 70 years, and they had established these different fasts for because of the breaking of the wall down, the burning of the temple, and, and so on, the, the things that had occurred to them, they had a fast about. Now, we've not followed those, they've not been commanded, we've only followed one fast, Day of Atonement, because it's commanded. These others, the Jews established, but God referred to them, saying, you've established these fasts, but I'm going to turn them into joy. Cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace, you see. If we stick to the truth and we make peace among ourselves, then God is going to begin to turn and bless us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and inhabitants of many cities. There again you have reference back to Haggai, that he would stir up the people and that they would come. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Reminds me of the, uh, the reference there in Isaiah. Where, or, no, maybe it's Jeremiah. I forget. My mind is gone. Uh, I miss it more than anything. Uh, but I, he said there that uh, uh, the people would ask the way to Zion. How do I find? How do I get there? Same, same type of thing here. You know, we've, we've gone from city to city, as Amos eight says, seeking truth. And he, he says there was partial famine, and then it becomes total famine, and they can't find it anywhere. Nowhere do we find satisfaction of spiritual bread and meat and wine. But then, But once God establishes the leadership, and once we get truth and peace figured out, once we get our relationships with he and each other straightened out, He's one to bring us together, whoever we are. And he's going to put that temple together in a beautiful way and bless it like he never blessed us under Mr. Armstrong. That is not a smack against him. That's a smack against the fact that Satan sold tares and we were became at of sin and so on and so forth. But that's all got to be wiped away in this pressure that's coming and we will be formed and prepared. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. That's the church figuratively here, and to pray before the eternal. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Revelation 3, in talking about the Philadelphia church there, it talks about those who say they are Jews and are not. They will come and worship at your feet. That's not entirely the millennial scripture. It's also referring to a restoral of truth and right attitude and right relationships in the church today. And that then those who turn out to be true leaders and who turn out to be true Christians, people from around the earth are going to begin to come in and take hold of the skirt of he who really is a Jew, not he who claimed he was, like a Takajite and wasn't but really is from the heart and in the depths of the mind a true follower of truth and peace and righteousness in peace those are the ones God is going to gather together and build the latter temple and give it the glory that it will at that point then deserve because the righteousness of God is shining out of it through the lives and minds of the people that are in it and he's had trouble shining through the church lately. So we have the grand golden opportunity, brethren, to get our lives and our hearts and our minds straight with God and fulfill His purposes instead of our own and to really help one another instead of pushing one another away and grow together in truth and in peace so that we can be part of the glorious ladder temple and be part of the new Jerusalem when it comes in the kingdom of God. But we are a type of it for the rest of Israel and the world. You see, the two witnesses need to look at you and me and say, world, look at this glorious bunch of people over here who are living in peace and in truth and in righteousness and are not fighting with one another. And here all you nations are lined up against one another, fighting one another. And you're wrong. And God is going to destroy you if you don't repent. You've got to be like this light over here on the hill that's shining in your face. The church isn't going to be hidden, brethren. It's going to be taken to a place of safety, and it is going to be a microcosm of the millennium showing that people indeed can live together in truth and in peace and in holiness and righteousness. That's what God is calling you and I to do, is to be a part of that, so that we can be a shining example on a hill in the heights of Zion, to the rest of this world. We are Jerusalem and Zion. We are the holy hill of God. Now all we have to do is live up to that in diligent obedience and truth and peace and God will raise us and set us before the world. And we will be that example that the whole world has to look to and we will be shoved in their face. And they won't like it. And they will hate that witness. They will not accept the way of God that leads to righteousness and peace. And most of them will have to die. Nearly all of six billion people will have to die. Daniel indicates only one hundred million will survive out of six to seven billion. Because they will not accept and do what God is telling us to do. Are we up to the challenge? Are we ready to do this? It's talking about us. It's talking about now. Nah. God throws the gauntlet down in the last verse of chapter 6. Diligently obey, seek truth, seek peace, and these things will come to pass.